the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. Run your law firm the right way. This is the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. So we are live with Justin Goff. I've been on Justin's email list for a while. He was on the Hustle and Flowchart podcast with our friends from San Diego, and uh, I've been following him ever since. He's an expert on copywriting. Everybody in the group's been after me to get uh, copywriting experts on. His real specialty is helping to convert cold traffic. And Justin, I hate to say it, but I think some of our members are even going to need to know what cold traffic is. But welcome to the show, and thanks for making time for us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, guys. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your background, how you got into internet marketing, and I know that you've, you've worked in some really interesting verticals, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that to start off? Yeah, so my kind of whole journey started when I was in college uh, from a $1,200 gambling debt that I could not pay. I was trying to figure out a way to pay this off and came up with a great idea that I was going to make a website and sell my sports picks on it. That basically for about six months, seven months, whatever, flop, nobody bought a thing. I was like, had no idea what to do to get customers. I'm spamming forums and like posting links everywhere to thinking this is what you're supposed to do. Uh, but I was too stupid and too stubborn to realize that I should have just quit. Uh, so basically kept doing that. And then um, probably about seven, it was like six, seven months later, someone actually bought something. And that was just like shocking to me. I still remember, uh, like I said, I was in college and I was at my parents' house at the time because it was, it was over Christmas break. I remember literally jumping up and down in their computer room and like screaming and running around the room because like up until this point, like none of this was like real. It was just like, oh, this pipe dream. Uh, and it, that's when things kind of like turned real. It's like, oh, you can actually, you actually can make money online. Um, so that was kind of my first taste of how to actually make money online and be an entrepreneur. Uh, evolved from there in many ways. So I, I, I was really big in the uh, poker affiliate world when poker was booming, kind of in the mid 2005-ish, somewhere in there. Uh, made money as an affiliate. That all kind of hit the fan when the government outlawed online poker in the United States in like 2009-ish. Uh, moved into fitness and health stuff. So started selling information products online. Uh, we were kind of one of the first ones who were on the paleo diet trend before it got really big. Sold a lot of cookbooks and courses around helping people lose weight. Uh, I built a couple, couple companies up to about a million dollars, two million dollars doing that stuff. And then kind of my biggest win uh, back in 2017, I, I built a supplement company to about $23 million in sales. And then I sold my stake in that. 
And that was really off the back of copywriting, uh, which is really just salesmanship and print. Uh, it's a way to sell stuff to people. And yeah, that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Awesome. So I remember when I got my first client off one of my YouTube videos, because just like you, I'd been putting out these videos. I didn't know if anybody was watching them. I saw that we had a little incremental increase of subscribers. But yeah, that feeling when it happens the first time is so awesome because you're like, if this happened once, it can happen twice. So yeah, that totally made my day. I get that. Nice. So when you were done spamming people on online forums, how did you start to teach yourself copywriting? So I kind of learned copywriting from just like old school books. So I studied a lot of like Gary Halbert and Dan Kennedy, Clayton Makepeace, stuff like that. Uh, there, there's a lot of actually really good copywriting books you can just buy on Amazon for 10 bucks and, and learn the basics of copywriting, especially if you're in a niche, like someone who's a lawyer, like you don't have to be a world-class copywriter to write better copy than the lawyers you're competing against. And so, I mean, and, and really, like we said, copywriting is really just persuading someone to uh, buy something from you to come on as a client, uh, however, however you want to look at it. And it, it's really about talking to someone one-on-one, -on -one, showing things like proof, showing things like, I, under, I understand your situation, showing how you can actually help them, things like that. In, in a, like I said, in a one-on-one -on -one situation, probably one of the biggest mistakes copy people make, especially non-copywriters when they try to write copy, is they try to sound very like corporate-y because they want to have like this professional image and the reality is really good copy actually sounds like me and you sitting across from each other in a bar and talking to each other. It feels like me and you are actually talking to each other. We're one-on-one. -on -one. This is like a real genuine conversation. It's not corporate speak from a PR person at Microsoft or something like that. One of the things that I've learned from listening to you and reading your emails most days uh, is that people, and especially lawyers, but people who want to sell things don't do a good enough job understanding what motivates their avatar clients or what, what, they, what keeps their clients up at night. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, step one of writing really good copy is truly understanding who you're writing to at their core. And this is actually something we teach to a lot of like the copywriters in our groups. A lot of people will make the mistake of just starting to write and they'll be like, all right, here's the product I'm writing for and here's how I want to sell it. And they just start writing. And a lot of those people, you can tell very, very quickly. I'm like, this is, you're trying to sell something to a 75 year old woman, yet you don't really know anything about what it's like to be a 75 year old woman. You're a 26 year old dude who has nowhere near any of the problems that she has. So we see this a lot. Like, like I coach a lot of copywriters who write health stuff and I actually have do stuff like, I'm like, get on the phone with your grandma and talk to her and ask about kind of stuff that's going on in her life. Like I had a really eye-opening experience with this, uh, talking to my grandma on the phone where she said, she's like 80, I don't know, six, 87 now. She mentioned she was really, really nervous about this big event coming up. And I'm asking her about, I'm like, what are you, what are you nervous about? She's like, well, we're going to this charity function in like four weeks. And she's like, and there's three flights of stairs there. And I have to walk up all three flights of stairs. And this is like a month away and she's like panicking about this and she's in her house doing like stairs daily to prepare for this. And me as like a 36 year old person, like I would never, I would never think of that as like a big worry uh, in my life. But when you truly get to understand who the customer is, what they want, what's their kind of like big fears, uh, what's their worries, what do they really kind of want to accomplish? Like in the best case scenario, then you can write exactly to those fears, exactly to the, uh, all those other kind of pain points that are going on. Do you think people are motivated more by something that they want or something that you know, some pain they want to avoid? 
Definitely uh, getting out of pain more than getting the end goal. Uh, so someone who's, you see this a lot in weight loss, like someone who's like really overweight is actually much more motivated to not be overweight anymore than they are to be skinny. Like they want to get out of that personal hell of being overweight, of taking their shirt off at the beach and feeling insecure about it. Stuff like that hits them way, way harder than the promise of being 20 pounds lighter. Okay, so people should talk to their grandma if that's their target market. What about, I mean, here's, here's what I get from a lot of lawyers, Justin. So let's say we're talking about lawyers that handle car accidents and they say to themselves, well, I've, hand, I've had a lot of clients who've come through my office. I sort of feel like they know what it is to go through a car accident. Maybe I've even been in a car accident. What, what's missing beyond just sort of the daily interactions with clients? Are there specific things you should be asking them about? I mean, so, so think about it. So are you talking about kind of like a personal injury lawyer type thing? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So think about it from the person's standpoint who gets in a car accident. Most people, I think I've probably been in one car accident my whole life. So most people don't get in tons of car accidents from what I believe. So and if, if you're hitting, like I've gotten in an accident before and gotten all the direct mail from all the personal injury lawyers like three days later. And some of it is actually really good. Some of it's awful. Some of it's you can tell they hired someone who knows what the hell they're doing and because there's probably big money in those cases, I'm assuming. So yeah, really, truly, like, like something like a, a car accident, you might not have a defined demographic. Like it's not going to be women from the age of 45 to 70 or something like it is in a lot of niches, but you are going to have a lot of the same emotions and feelings among all those clients. One of which I'm just off the top of my head, like, they're confused and they don't know what to do is probably a huge one. Like I've never been in an accident or I've been in a little fender bender before and I just got T-boned at an intersection and I'm not really sure what the hell I'm supposed to do. That is probably a huge one. So, I mean, I think a lot of stuff with like a lawyer is more about being an advocate and having someone in their corner uh, because that person coming in kind of feels almost like a little child in a sense where it's like, I don't know what to do. This is very foreign to me. I'm afraid I'm going to screw this up. I'm afraid I'm going to get screwed over in, in a court case or whatever. Like, I need someone in my corner who's going to fight for me and show me exactly what to do. Like I said, I don't really know a whole lot about the lawyer niche, but I, just knowing people, that's probably a pretty common emotion that's kind of going on from someone who, who gets in a car accident. So do you, think that, do you think that lawyers can teach themselves how to be good copywriters, or do you think they should hire people? So a lot of it really depends on how you run your business. If you are running a, a well-oiled machine and you have multiple employees and you kind of like to run bigger kind of company where like you're the CEO kind of dictating stuff, I would 100% probably just hire someone. It's not worth your time to learn how to write, write copy. If you're kind of more of the one-man show doing stuff on your own, uh, I think you definitely could hire a copywriter. The big thing with hiring the copywriter is like, even if you hire a a junior copywriter who's pretty cheap and say, I don't know, pay him 2000 bucks to write a direct mail piece for you. That's going to get clients that $2,000 is going to be well spent because even if you're trying to learn on your own, he, he's going to write it better uh, for $2,000 than you probably would write out of the gate unless you have some real copy chops yourself. So besides knowing sort of the pain points of your avatar, what, what are other good markers of good copy? Okay, so, so that's number one, really knowing who the, who the market is, knowing exactly who you're writing to. When you actually, let's say, send something out to them, let's say you're sending a direct mail letter to their house or you're writing an email to them, whatever it is, 
probably one of the biggest mistakes I see is not grabbing their attention right away. So people will write something and it'll be like seven sentences in or eight paragraphs in that they finally say what the thing that actually like grabs somebody's attention. They do like, it's, we call it throat clearing. You basically like put out all the stuff that trying to lead up to what you really want to say. And the problem is people's attention spans, like as soon as you're boring for three sentences, they just stop reading. They go back to checking their iPhone or they're playing around on Instagram or whatever the hell they're doing. Uh, whatever's more exciting than what you're saying. Gary Halbert, who's like a famous copywriter, always had a saying that the most deadly sin in marketing is being boring. And that's for sure true. Whether you're writing emails, whether you're doing Facebook posts, uh, whatever it is, if you're boring and you're talking about just like the technical speak, especially if you're talking like a language that only other lawyers would understand, that's another huge issue where it's you communicate I wrote an email about this to my email list the other day. I had a call with one of my financial advisors. I connected them to my parents to kind of help them with their portfolio stuff. And a lot of stuff he was talking about was just flying over my parents' head. He's like using words like index funds and equities and stuff like that. My parents, I had to stop him like four times and like explain to him what an index fund is and what equities are the same thing as stocks. So when he says equities, he means stocks. That type of stuff, like, especially in professional niches, like you see this a lot with doctors too. The doctors will talk about hypertension instead of just saying high blood pressure. Well, your average person knows what high blood pressure is. Your average person doesn't know what hypertension is. They don't even realize they're the same thing. Uh, so using the actual words that the people you're trying to sell to or you're trying to get as a client, that's a huge, huge thing. And it's hard. You're right. It's hard because we go to law school and they teach us all these big words and big concepts and then we're expected to turn that all off when we're talking to our clients. And I, I think you're right. I mean, for me, I'm an immigration lawyer, so I deal with immigrants. So not only am I, you know, dealing with people who aren't used to hearing legal uh, language, they're not used to hearing the English language. So it's a whole other level. So I've really worked hard to try to make my messaging to people really simple, but it's easy to slip into that overly lawyer stuff. You know, the other thing with lawyers is lawyers love to talk about how smart they are, how many years of experience they have. I mean, talk to us a little bit about some more about what, as an outsider, looking in at the state of lawyer advertising, what, what are you seeing? So a lot of, I've done a ton of work in uh, fitness with gym owners and they, they run into a lot of the same issues. So a lot of professionals do this where, so like gym owners or personal trainers tend to talk about all their certifications and all the stuff they've gone through. And your average person doesn't give two shits about that. Like they don't understand what that certification is. They don't, they, there's four letters behind your name. They, they don't understand any of it. What they really care about though is a lot of proof and credibility type stuff. Um, so what do, you, what do you mean proof and credibility? Yeah. So let's say, let's say you're a lawyer in a, in Austin, Texas, where I live, and you write the weekly column in the Austin American Statesman about, I don't know, traffic tickets or whatever, that is proof and credibility to a lot of people. Or you represented uh, this person and this person, that's proof and credibility. That type of stuff goes a lot further. Or, or maybe you just wrote a self-published book on immigration and how you can, I don't know, whatever your topic is in terms of immigration law. You're then now seen as the expert in that niche. And a lot of people really don't really, I mean, most professionals don't do enough in terms of that because the more you can be seen as like the go-to person for your niche, the better you're going to do. And, and one of the big things there is you see this all over is people are really scared to narrow their niche and specify who they serve 
So like you saying you, you do immigration stuff, that's, that's much better. The majority of people I know who like are lawyers, like they do seven different things. Right. And I'll give you a really good example of this. The guy who does my uh, taxes, when I was referred to him, he is a, he bills himself as a tax strategist specifically for entrepreneurs who make between a million and $5 million a year. That is a crazy specific kind of niche that he goes to. Yet I've also sent him probably, uh, I don't know, nine people because anybody, anytime one of my buddies who's an entrepreneur who I know makes good money asks me about tax stuff, I'm like, oh yeah, you need, you need to talk to Jeff. I mean, that, that's how you get really good referrals too by, by being niched down to a, a really kind of specific kind of category. Yeah, I think that's true for sure. I mean, I think that, it, I mean, I got an, somebody joined the Facebook group the other day and they said that they specialize in car accidents, wills, criminal, and DUI and um, divorce. So I don't know how you can specialize in five things. And there's lots of reasons why that kind of marketing doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, it's also, if you just look at the general landscape of specialist versus generalist, specialists always make more. If you look at it in medicine, the heart surgeon is always going to make more than the family doctor. The brain surgeon is always going to make more than the pediatrician. The more you can specialize, even in my world of copywriting, the, the copywriter who's really damn good at writing health and weight loss stuff and doesn't write anything else usually makes a lot more than the person who's like, oh yeah, I write articles and I can write blog posts and I can write your sales copy. And it's just, you're kind of all over the map and it's really hard to be a specialist when you do that. Yeah, for sure. So talk to us a little bit about the state of internet marketing. How are things now? I know that with the coronavirus and everything, things are unusual, but is this a good time for lawyers to be advertising online or trying to get into social? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan of continuing to do what you're doing as long as if there's money coming in and you're still able to get cases or you're still able to build up a list of leads, 100% because it's really smart to be doing stuff like that while everybody else is kind of pulling back. And the one thing you kind of mentioned is kind of how stuff is happening right now with the coronavirus. A lot of the huge like brand advertisers that have really pulled back on Facebook. So, I mean, you, you can get clicks now for half the price that they were just three months ago in a lot of niches simply because the big advertisers have really pulled back all their budgets. So I know a lot of people that think that they should just hop on Facebook, run a few ads and see what happens. But talk to us a little bit about the funnel afterwards. Like what needs to happen? What setup do you need to have if you're going to run Facebook or Google ads? Yeah. So, I mean, it really depends what uh, you're going to specifically run them for. I would say for like lawyers, it's a little different because there's a lot of lawyers where let's say you would have an ongoing relationship with them. And then there's other lawyers like probably a car accident one where you kind of use them once and then, there's probably not a whole lot of an ongoing relationship after that. Now, I'll give you an example. The, the guy I use for the lawyer for my business, he actually is niched down specifically to, he works with all kinds of online entrepreneurs. And if you talk to any of the biggest kind of like CPA affiliate networks, they use him. Uh, if you talk to people like me or uh, people who are running 10, $20 million businesses in the online space, they, a lot of them use this guy as well. Like someone in his situation, he'd be really smart like, I'm a huge fan of having some way of getting in front of uh, your customers and your clients every single day. So like for my personal business, I do that with my daily email. I write an email every morning to my email list uh, that's both informational but more entertaining. Uh, and there, there's always a bit, of, it's a lot of storytelling, but there's always like a bit of uh, something that they can take away, a golden nugget that's like, oh, I, that's really, 
good reminder or something to know. And you can, you can do this in any niche. I mean, going back to, let's say like my, the tax guy that I use, I've been trying to encourage him for a while. Like I was like, you should do a monthly print newsletter that you send out to all of your clients and all of your prospective clients that tells a bunch of stories of how you've helped people basically save a bunch of money on their taxes. And you can tell these in a fun and entertaining, don't tell them like an accountant would tell them, but tell them in a fun and entertaining way. That's a cool, I would love to say that each month, how you took this guy from paying $300,000 a year in taxes and now you got him down to 150 by doing this, this, and this. That's really valuable information. And just kind of being in front of someone every single month or every single day, however you want to do it, really changes the game because that just keeps you front of the mind. I mean, probably, probably one of the biggest mistakes you could do is, is not being in front of the people that you want to sell to and the people that you're already currently selling to. How did you settle on once a day? for your emails? It was really evolved. So when I start my old supplement company, we started off mailing, we sent emails twice a week. And I remember at the time, a buddy of mine was telling me he was mailing five times a week. And I thought that was crazy. And I'm like, that's too much. You can't mail people that often. They're going to get mad and they're going to unsubscribe from your emails. And he's like, showed me his revenue compared to when he was mailing twice a week, like I was, and he was making like three times the amount of money. And I was like, Oh, okay. So I switched to mailing five times a week. And then a couple of months later, this, the same guy was like, he's like, yeah, I mail seven times a week. Now we just, we just mail every day. He showed me kind of the stats. And I was like, okay, moved to seven times a week. I know, I know some people who mail twice a day. And if you do it correctly, if you do it in a fun and entertaining kind of way, people actually look forward to your emails. And it's not, a, it's not seen as a burden. Like, like one of the things that I really related it to, so I'm, I'm like a huge Howard Stern fan. And every time I'm in the car, I listen to Howard Stern when I'm driving. I don't see it as a burden that Howard Stern's on the air every day for four hours. It's not like, oh, shit, he's, he's here harassing me for four more hours today. Like, why can't this be a one-time-a-week show? No, I actually really want to listen to it because I love listening to the show. And I, I kind of look at the if you can write emails in a fun and entertaining kind of way that people look forward to. You can kind of create that same thing where people want to tune in each day to hear what you have to say. Well, I think your emails live up to that, to that test. I mean, I've, I can remember specific stories that you've told from your emails months ago. Like I, one of my favorites was the one, I think you sent out a couple about, it was like a dog hospital or something that you were helping. And can you tell everybody that story? Um, yeah, the dog rescue, the one I did yeah. kind of like around Christmas time. Yeah. Yeah, I basically, so I, I do a lot of direct mail and fundraising stuff for um, a Great Dane rescue that I used to help with when I lived in Ohio and they're really really good at saving dogs they're terrible at marketing and raising money they have no idea what the hell they're doing um, so I basically reached out to them and did like a pro bono campaign and told them I'd help them raise some money um, and I, I just kind of shared that story with my list because it, it really is all about copywriting um, and all about storytelling and uh, just kind of went through I think the one you're referring to I basically broke down the whole campaign was like Here's exactly why I made the decisions that I made. Here's why I chose the story that I did. So like the, the main story in it was about this, this great Dane that they rescued who had kind of been uh, basically abandoned. Their, their family just took him out to the country and dumped the poor girl on the side of the road and left her there uh, like in the middle of winter. And that, that's a pretty heartbreaking story for any dog lover. So that, that was like the crux of the, the fundraising letter that I sent out. But yeah, that, that, that campaign did great for them. They're, they're, like I said, they're a small rescue who maybe needs like sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars a year to operate and we raised like 
12,500 bucks just with one simple letter. Yeah. And that reminds me of your email this morning where you, you contrasted two different paragraphs. So in, in the first paragraph, you talked about how, how much things suck in Africa. And then the other paragraph, you told the story of one, per, one little girl who was being nursed by her mother and about the different, I mean, just reading the two paragraphs, you could see the emotional contrast and, and it was the power of the story. Yeah, I mean, nothing, nothing grabs people's attention and moves them more than an emotional story. So kind of the, the example you're, you're referring to, basically, you'll see in like, let's say a lot of fundraising letters for uh, charities and stuff, they'll rattle off a bunch of stats. Uh, and the one I kind of put in the email is like, there's starving kids in Africa. Uh, there's over 4 million of them. They don't have the food they need. A lot of these kids are going to grow up to be sick. Uh, because they're malnourished from a young age. Uh, and it's really just like a lot of facts. It's like one out of every two kids dies before the age of this. That doesn't hit you on an emotional level as much as me telling you about the little story of uh, a six-year-old girl named Jaden who goes to bed every night with hunger pains in her stomach and she cries herself to sleep because she's so hungry. And her mom's sitting there feeding her ice chips to try to make it better. And that doesn't really... It doesn't really help the situation, but she, she, she does it anyways. And Jaden is going to kind of grow up or Jaden every single day feel, doesn't know where her next meal, where her next meal is coming from. And think about if this was your six year old daughter, like that emotional story is like, Oh shit. That, I mean that anybody who's got a kid or nieces, nephews, whatever that kind of hits you in the gut on an emotional level. And then the same thing happens. Like I said, this, this is very prevalent in, nonprofit charity type uh, fundraising stuff, but it works in everything. I mean, you could tell the exact same kind of stories if you're a lawyer. Uh, I mean, you, you could tell, I'm sure you could probably tell some pretty emotional stories about immigration stuff with people getting their freedom or uh, winning a case. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure a lot of them probably revolve around kind of getting their freedom. Yeah, I'm lucky that I have a lot of good stories to tell. And one of our, you know, one of my little niches within immigration is that I sue the immigration service a lot when people's cases are delayed. So like, when I tell a story about how someone was like banging their head on the wall trying to get the government to give them their immigration benefit so their wife or husband could come to America. And then I, I include a picture of the person like right after they got off the plane. I mean, people love that stuff much more than hearing about me. And telling it like a story as opposed to talking about the legal doctrine of how I won the case. Nobody cares about that, right? <laughs> no, no way. <laughs> maybe, some, maybe some lawyers do, but <laughs> that's about it. So from a marketing standpoint for lawyers, I, th I think what I'm hearing you say is that tell, tell your client stories, make them the hero and, and you sort of the guide and showing them sort of the path. And then I think people resonate. You know, I made, I made a <clears throat> one of my YouTube videos last year. I've talked about how, I help people with these lawsuits. I've made many videos about that, but I made this one where I talked about this one client named Muhammad who wasn't able to come from, I don't remember where, Jordan or someplace. And it was just all about Muhammad. So now when I have consults with people, Jim, I saw your video about Muhammad. That's, that's my case. I'm just like Muhammad, right? So I totally get that. What other tips do you have for people besides telling their clients stories? If you were in charge of a lawyer's marketing budget what would you have them do online these days yeah so i mean the one you said i think is a great one i actually use very similar in my business where i interview people who are in our mastermind and i put these videos up on youtube 
And they're great content because it, it tells their story of going from where they were before the mastermind now kind of where they're at now. So it's like, I went from working at Abercrombie and Fitch and now I'm making $100,000 a year as a copywriter. That's a super amazing story for someone who's a freelance copywriter and they want to hear about that journey. But on the same note, it's also just a massive, massive amount of proof that what I'm doing works. So I'm putting that video up on YouTube. People are seeing it. And it's just proof after proof after proof. The more I put out those videos that what I'm teaching and what, what I'm uh, kind of doing in my mastermind really works. So I 100% would do that a lot um, if I was a lawyer. And the cool thing is you can repurpose that over and over and over again. So like that video you put on YouTube, telling that client's story or maybe interviewing that client, that same thing could be turned into a Facebook post. It could be turned into an email. It could be turned into a direct mail campaign. Like, once you got good stories, man, just use them over and over and over again. Good stuff. All right. So this one is a little bit uh, personal for me, a little bit helping. I know we're, we're running out of time, so I want to be respectful of your time. So let's say that I was going to start an online course, right? So right now I have about 15,000 YouTube subscribers. I have an email list of about nine or 10,000 people and um, we're get we get pretty good open rates. And so for the first time and a lot of, in response to our current condition is I've been wanting to do a course. Let's say it's a course on helping a U.S. citizen bring their spouse here from overseas. So that's sort of our bread and butter. And I think a lot of people have a lot of misinformation about that. So I want to have like an online course about that. What do you think about that? And what would I, what should I be thinking about on the marketing side of that? Are, are you selling this to lawyers or are you selling this to? To people, regular people. Okay. And is your email list lawyers or is it regular people? Regular people. Oh, Okay. What, what, what is your email list about? It's, immigration? My, it's my immigration law firm's email list. So it's separate from this group. This is a lawyer group, but then I, I have my own immigration law practice. So I, I email immigrants or people who've worked with us in the past and I email them. I only email them once a, once a week now. Okay. So you're wondering what, what's, what would be kind of the best hook or angle for selling that course? Yeah. Sorry. Get, get, tell me again what it was getting someone, bringing your, bringing so, someone over. Let's say Justin's a U.S. citizen and Justin went over to France and fell in love with someone from France and wanted to bring that person to the United States. That's one of our main practice areas in the firm. But a lot of people think that they, my biggest competition is not necessarily other lawyers. It's people who think they can do it themselves. And I think with the economy going down a little bit, there's going to be more people trying to do it themselves because having me do it costs like 3500 bucks, right? So if I can sell them, the, and if I can sell them a course to, to try it for $500 on their own, and then maybe if they, if they feel like they're in over their head, then they might know to hire us or they might just buy the course. I'm just thinking, what, what kind of message or what should I be thinking about when I'm talking about marketing that? Yeah, so I mean, I guess my first thing is, would be, obviously it, it is a needed uh, kind of topic because you're already doing this for clients. My biggest thing too would be really surveying the list and kind of running like, I don't know, six or seven ideas by them. So maybe, maybe that's one of them. Maybe another one's about, some other type of immigration, you would know what's, what the topics are based on what kind of cases you're doing, because there's probably one or two of them that's going to be a little more of a hot topic than other ones. So yeah, that, that's a big thing. I, I learned this lesson the hard way where I used to think I knew exactly what course I should put out. And then I started surveying the list and I kind of gave them like seven options. I was like, here's the seven I'm like thinking of doing, just like to get your opinion. Which of these would you purchase if I put them out? I basically listed like six or seven of them on SurveyMonkey, put, put like a name on them. And then I 
put some little detail about what the course is about. And I was like, all right, the price, the price is the same for all of them. Cause you don't want like price to dictate their choice. And then you send that out to the list and you watch the responses come in. We started doing this in my old supplement company when we were putting out books for like our topics for books. And the first time I ever did it, I, I, I put in five of my ideas for what I wanted to do. And then I took three ideas that I knew were best-selling direct mail books and just put them in there as well just to kind of see. And the three that were the best-selling direct mail books just crushed all the other ones by a long, long mile. And like if I would just stuck with the four or five that I, I had in my head that I thought would be great sellers, we would have never put out a winning uh, offer. So to me, that, that's the first step um, is really nailing that what your list wants is what you're selling, uh, which, which is very elementary. But I mean, the smartest marketers I know make this mistake and kind of put out what they think they want. So, I mean, that's good because then you don't invest all this time and effort into a, in a course that nobody wants, right? <laughs> Yes. Um, I mean, it's a very common mistake. It's, I created this, now who's going to buy it? And the real way is, all right, here's a market that wants X. Let me go make that. that that's the way to create courses. That's the way to create products. I mean, that's how, I think that's how Tim Ferriss came up with the four-hour work week, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Tim, Tim was super uh, pragmatic about his testing from what I've read on that, where he was just testing all kinds of Google ads for kind of the hook and the angle and landed on four-hour work week, which turned into monster blockbuster bestseller. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a huge, huge mistake, though, that, that like I said, even very, very smart marketers, like I made this mistake for years and years. I have friends that are smarter than I am that they're like, oh, I got this idea for this. And I'm like, well, did you actually like, have you done any testing on it? Did you run a survey by your list? No, no. And then they'll run a survey by the list, like kind of the similar one I just said. And yeah. their idea is like the fifth, uh, fifth best one out of seven. You're like, I just saved you eight months of a nightmare trying to put that together. All right. Well, Justin, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. I think everyone's going to get a lot out of this. I know that you are very, you have a very interesting approach to your email list. Do you want to talk a little bit about that real quick? Sure. Like I said, I'm, I'm a huge Howard Stern fan. And like, that's kind of how I treat my email list. It's very much something I, I try to get people to tune into every day. It's a combination of entertainment, me teaching marketing stuff, me teaching kind of persuasion stuff. And then also a lot of like personal stuff that really helps with like the bonding uh, and people seeing me as a real person. Funny enough, I mean, the posts that I write that I never think are going to do well are the ones that get the most responses. It's always the ones where I'm talking about my dog or talking about whatever the hell's <laughs> restaurant I ate at last night. <laughs> I, I, I could write like a 10 page one on these awesome marketing tactics and crickets, but it's always, it's always the ones that you don't think are going to do well that everybody tends to like. All right, great. So yes. how do they get on your email list? Oh yeah. If people want to subscribe. So my email list, unlike most email lists where you can just opt in is actually by application. So there's a little application with like seven questions you fill out. And if you're a good fit, uh, I'll put you on the list. So if you just go to justin123.com, that'll take you right to the application. It's a nice, ugly Google form that goes right to me. So I'll get the application if you fill that out. Justin, thanks so much, man. Thanks for spending time with us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks guys. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your hosts and to access more content, go to MaximumLawyer.com. Have a great week and catch you next time.